Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this uh, episode, we'll be beginning a short series, a two-part series on Steinbeck's third novel, To a God Unknown. If you want a good introduction to Steinbeck, I urge you to go back and listen to the previous series on A Pastures of Heaven. But I'll say a few things about the context of, of the writing of this novel. This was one of the most difficult novels Steinbeck ever wrote for him. It was also and of the earliest novels was by far the most difficult for him to write. The manuscript for this was actually published right after, well, not not published, but the manuscript was written uh, around the time he published The Cup of Gold, which was his first novel, and it was actually rejected. Um, and then it that was in 1930, and it wasn't it wasn't published until after Pastures of Heaven came out, and it was, you know edited and revised throughout that process. So it took him a full three or four years to get this this novel right. It's a nice little gem of a novel. It really deals with this, I guess, the spiritualism of the farmer's connection to the land. And, you know, I don't know how far we f- should push this. I'm sure there are farmers out there who feel this kind of mystical uh, connection to the land. Most American farmers, uh, of course, have been Christian um, and, and haven't had this kind of pagan sentiment towards the land. In fact, many of them often misuse the land and mistreat it and and don't show any real evidence of having a special spiritual connection to the land. So I don't know how much of this is is myth. Uh, There's a lot of allegory in here, uh, religious allegory, especially about sacrifice. Um, But anyways, let's try to get into this story. Um, I'll, I'll look at the first half of this novel or around the first 15 chapters. Um, our, the main characters are, are the Waynes. They're, they're a family in Vermont. And uh, one of the members of this family, Joseph, he uh, tells his father he's going to move out west. And his father is initially not very too, not happy with this. He's getting old. He fears he's never going to see his son again. Uh, and we get a nice... Um, we hear so much about the westward migration and the pioneers and the gold rush and all these events in U.S. history. And we don't often think about the impact this had on the people left behind. Um, historians, of course, have looked at letters and know very well how much of an impact these westward migrations have had on American families. And here we just get into the course of a few pages, the anxiety of the father overseeing his his son go. And in fact, it will be the last time he sees him because not long after arriving in California, he gets news that his father dies. But already within the very first pages of this novel, we get evidence of this uh, spiritualism of the land. I, I mean, at this point in the novel, though, it's still kind of more of a land hunger. He says, the land's being taken. The century is three years gone. If I wait, the good land might all be taken. I have a hunger for the land, sir. And his eyes grow feverish with hunger. So we see early on that he has a hunger for for the land, not so much the opportunity. He doesn't talk about opportunity. He talks about the land. He wants to settle down someplace. And we get the sense that maybe he feels, you know, really constrained in Vermont. He doesn't have space to branch out. He'll have that in, in California. He has this restlessness, but much more he has this drive to own land, to have a piece of his land. And this might be an inter- interesting metaphor for kind of this American dream of home ownership, of, of land ownership, and the fact that our character, spoiler alert, uh, at the end of the novel, uh, sacrifices himself to his own land might be a metaphor for Americans' attitude towards the, the land. 
And we've already seen in Pastures of Heaven, and of course we'll see it in other Steinbeck novels, that Steinbeck is very interested in mobility and migration and people moving around. And how does that jive with this desire to attach oneself to one land? We've already to, to land. We've already seen this fall apart in one of the stories in Pastures of Heaven, where the character tries to set up a homestead for the the future, the foreseeable future, and it fails within a generation. Okay, in chapter two, he, he Steinbeck is right into it. The, our main character Joseph arrives at um, Nuestro Señora, which becomes his homestead, and he gets his whatever 160 acres. He starts to set up his homestead. Um, we start to see almost immediately a much more deeper spiritualism that he has with the land, and some of Joseph's mysticism that he carries with him, or maybe he develops when he gets there. So listen to this. Um, now the path broke into a broad grassy meadow, in the center of which a colony of live oaks grew like a green island in the lake of lighter green. As Joseph rode towards the trees, he heard an agonized squealing and turned the grove shoulder and came in sight of a huge boar with curved tusks and yellow eyes and a mane of shaggy red hair. The beast sat on his haunches and terribly ate the hindquarters of a still squealing little pig. In the distance, a sow and five other little pigs bounded away, crying in terror. The boar stopped eating and set its shoulders when Joseph rode into its line of scent. It snorted, and then, returning to the dying pig, which still squealed piercingly, Joseph jerked up his horse. His eyes contracted with anger, and his eyes paled until they were almost white. Damn you, he cried. Eat other creatures. Don't eat your own people. He pulled his rifle from his scabbard and aimed between the yellow eyes of the boar, and then the barrel lowered, and the firm thumb let down the hammer. Joseph laughed shortly at himself. I'm taking too great power into my hands, he said. Why, he's the father of 50 pigs, and he may be the source of 50 more. The boar wheeled and snorted, and Joseph rode on by. End quote. And already a tension between the civilized and, and nature, right? The, the nature represented by the boar and the civilized represented by the, by the domesticated pigs that the boar was feasting on. It's a pretty gruesome scene. And then on the very next page, we see Joseph laying his hands on the branches, feeling the leaves and the limbs and and having kind of almost uh, like a sensory experience touching um, the, the, the trees in his land. So he's beginning to build up this spiritual relationship with the land very early on. Chapter 3, he begins working on his homestead. And as you might know, to qualify for the Homestead Act lands, you, you had to develop it. And that often meant simply just building a, a homestead of some sort. So he started doing that. Um, he meets the locals, too, and the most important local he meets is Juanito, who's an Indian. And we see uh, Steinbeck very interested in racial tensions and dynamics out in, in the West. We saw it a bit in Pastures of Heaven. It comes up a lot in Tortilla Flat. And, uh, and where else? Uh, even in Mice and Men, yeah, and especially in Mice and Men. But um, in Tortilla Flat, you have a lot of it. Here we, we have it, especially in Juanito's refusal to accept himself, his racial background. He said, I'm not an Indian. I'm Castilian. My eyes are blue. See my skin? It's dark, but that's the sun. But Castilians have blue eyes. Now, this same exact thing happens in Tortilla Flat, where the character, he talks about how the people of Tortilla Flat emphasize their Spanish background, and they use the underside of their arm as evidence that they're white. And they say that, you know, we're dark just because of the sun. Um, race becomes, uh, is, is an issue here with this character. So he starts to, um, uh, find his way 
learning a little bit about the locals. He learns about a Father Angelo who lives there, who's going to be, I guess, the more traditional spiritual um, figure compared to Joseph's more mystical spiritualism, paganism. Um, in the next chapter, chapter 4, Juanito pledges himself to Joseph. And now we have a kind of almost a feudal relationship. So it's it's kind of odd. On one hand, Joseph's setting up a homestead. He's setting himself up as a feudal lord the same way, um, what was his name, Whiteside did in Pastures of Heaven. Um, imagine himself as a feudal overlord. And here he actually gets on a vassal. Uh, Juanito says he wants to help him build his home and work on the farm. And Joseph kind of says, well, you know, you want to be paid? I don't know how much I can pay you. And Juanito says, no, I'll just serve you. And you'll pay me, you'll give me favors when you want. It's, it's really, he becomes essentially a serf of Joseph, according to the, the language there. Which is another, I guess, interesting tension between kind of the modern America and the mystical. The, the modern America reflected by mobility, uh, progress, development, and the more traditional America of and maybe with having one foot in the middle ages of kind of the landowning um, figure and certainly in the slaveholding south you had this nostalgia for the middle ages and i think eugene genovese's book on the mind of the master class gets a little bit into this nostalgia for the past in the southern mind um, well anyways around the time he's starting to develop set up his homestead he gets no a note from his father or note from his family that his father has died. And instead of mourning him, he, he kind of sees it just as the passing of nature. Um, and there's actually a part, I think it's in chapter 3, where there's a discussion of the cycles of the weather and, and the cycles of famine and drought and how it's just part of the natural course of life in in California. So he takes the death of his father without much um, emotion. He just simply writes to his brothers saying that they should come too. Um, he says... There's land untaken next to mine. Each of you can have 160 acres, and then we'll have 640 acres all in one piece. The grass is deep and rich, and the soil wants only turning. No rocks, Thomas, to make your plows turn somersaults. No ledges sticking out. We'll make a new community here if you come. And in fact, they do. And in the next chapter, we are introduced to Thomas's brothers. Um, um, so, jo Joseph's brother, sorry. Thomas is one of the brothers. So Thomas, the oldest, 42, a thick, strong man with gold hair and a long yellow mustache. Uh, Thomas had a strong kingship with all kinds of animals. Often he was on the edge of the manor when the horses eat their hay. There's a story here about how he would treat a dog's injuries really brutally, but with a bit of love. He Somehow he understood animals um, very well, uh, but he was unsentimental about it. Um, and there's characters in Steinbeck's. Uh, work that we're reminded of when we think of uh, Thomas's um, unsentimental uh, un, un, un relationship with animals, which is contrasted, of course, with Joseph's mystical and spiritual relationship with nature. Uh, next, we're introduced to Bert. Okay, so Thomas has a wife named Rama. Uh, all three of these brothers bring wives with them. Burton uh, is a very religious, uh, more traditional Christian um, brother. Quote, Burton was the one whom nature had cons constituted for a religious life. He kept himself from evil, and he found evil in nearly all close human contexts. Once, after a service to the church, he had been praised from the pulpit. He had two children. Celibacy was the natural state for him. 
Burton was never well. His cheeks were drawn and lean and his eyes hungry for a pleasure. He did not expect this side of heaven. End quote. Um, and the, the, there's like a, a relationship with all these wives too. Like Burton, the traditionalist, has this very forceful relationship to, with his wife. Um, Rama, Thomas's wife, is described as a strong, full-breasted woman with black brows that nearly met over her nose. She, out, she was nearly always contemptuous of everything men thought or did. She was good and efficient midwife and an utter terror to evil-doing children. Uh, and in fact, she kind of is a copy of, of the way Thomas has described how he deals with, the, with animals, this kind of brutal, um, honest, and unsympathetic unsentimental relationship the third brother the youngest brother we meet is benjamin and he's he's got a wife jenny but benjamin is the wastrel he's a drunk uh, he doesn't like to work he's uh romantic and not very reliable but anyways all three brothers do arrive and we meet them all in chapter five um so in chapter six we see this situation playing out a little bit um the land becomes one big ranch and joseph becomes the lord of the ranch and everyone kind of sees it as joseph's land joseph's land even though it's technically legally owned by you know in quarters by each brother um there's a discussion of the fertility of the land and this is the main obsession of Joseph, is fertility, because he's, again, this pagan. So all things about him, the soil, the cattle, and the people were fertile, and Joseph was the source, the root of their fertility. His was the motivating lust. He willed that all things about him must grow, grow quickly, conceive, and multiply. The hopeless sin was barrenness, a sin intolerable and unforgivable. Joseph's blue eyes were growing fierce in this new faith. He cut off barren creatures mercilessly, but when a birth crept about swollen with puppies or a bitch crept around swollen with puppies. When a cow was fat with calf, that creature was holy to him. Joseph did not think these things in his mind, but in his chest and in the corded muscles of his legs. All right, so that's another element of his spiritualism. That is, it's in his physical body. It's not, it's not an intellectual thing. It's, it's um, much more base and primitive um, feeling relationship he has with the land. Uh, there's a lot in here about the sexuality of the land, and we've already seen a bit of it. And, we have a contrast with Burton's asexuality and celibacy and, and traditional religious upbringing with Joseph's. He kind of sexualizes everything in in the farm. He, there's a scene where he talks about how he watches animals having sex with uh, kind of a religious gaze. Now, throughout this all, in news of drought and worries about drought from the people in the community, Joseph is assured of the fertility of the land. He has no doubt that the land will be fertile. Um, so we got a bit of a rational versus the mystical tension in, in this chapter as well. And so it's an important chapter. So I think six does a lot to set up some of the major themes of, of the novel. Um, now, most of the rest of the second half deals with uh, the courtship between Joseph and Elizabeth. Uh, so it, it really sets up uh, his wife. He's the one without a wife. The other three have them, but he, he collects one uh, out west, which is, I think is fitting for his character. So he, he meet, there's this guy, a saddler in the city, McGregor. So uh, Joseph ends up marrying kind of a city girl. Um, so the... Her future father-in-law is this man named McGregor. He's a Marxian. He's a, a Marxist. 
Um, but he's not a utopian anymore. He's kind of abandoned the utopianism of a lot of radicals. Instead, he's more of a, a grizzled, hard-headed Marxist, you know, realizing the nature of, of the world, not romantic at all, not, not, you know, not romanticized by dreams, not like Mac in Indubious Battle, right? Um, or even more Jim Norton in Indubious Battle, I think is even more romantic. So he's not like those characters. He, he realizes the right way the world is, um, but he doesn't really do much to change it. He's pretty cynical. Um, and he has this daughter, Elizabeth, a pretty girl, very determined. Her hair was fluffy, her nose small, and her chin firm from setting it against her father's. It was in her eyes that her beauty lay. Gray eyes set extremely far apart and lashed so thickly that they seemed to guard remote and preternatural knowledge. She was a tall girl, not thin, but lean and strong and taut with quick and nervous energy. Her father pointed out her faults, faults or rather faults he thought she had. Um, and he does criticize her for being a bit too much like her mother and maybe a bit too, not hard-headed enough like, like he is. Um, we learn that she's educated, right? Um, but she catches Joseph's eye um, and catches his heart. And the courtship begins in the next chapter, in chapter 8. Um, and the courtship essentially begins, um, it goes on for a couple chapters, but essentially begins with him uh, showing her land in binding with land. I would say chapters eight and nine together kind of show this courtship. I, I think at the end of chapter eight, she commits to herself that she's going to marry Joseph at the early stage of the courtship. But, you know, they they go on dating and meeting and having meetings but and building up the relationship. But what it really is is, is a kind of binding over land. Right. It's it's Elizabeth has to kind of become part of the land for her to be accepted by Joseph. Right. She's the home girl. She's the city girl. And Joseph is of the land and he has to introduce this to her for her to be part of his family. So at one point he tells her to kind of climb the tree and get the panoramic view of of the homestead. He says, you must climb the tree, Elizabeth. I want you to here. I'll help you. Right. He cupped her, his hand for her foot and steadied her until she sat on the crotch from which the great limbs grew. And when he saw how she fitted in the howl and how gray, her gray arms guarded her. I'm glad, Elizabeth, he cried. Glad, Joseph, you look glad. Your eyes are shining. Why are you so glad? He lowered his eyes and laughed to himself. Strange things one is glad of. I'm glad that you're sitting in my tree. A moment back, I thought I saw my tree loved you. Right. And so this is an important point where Joseph realizes that he he can marry this woman because she's being accepted by by the land symbolized by this tree. Uh, in chapter 10, we get the wedding ceremony. Um, Joseph wants a more earthy marriage. He doesn't want like a, like a normal Christian marriage. Uh, I wrote in my notes the Cuthonian marriage, a marriage of the land, almost a pagan ritual. He asks, there's a foulness here, speaking of the church. Why must we go through this to find our marriage? Here in the church, I thought there lay a beauty in a, if a man could find it, but this is only a doddering kind of devil worship. And so he's upset that he had to do this very important marriage ritual in a church, and he compares Christianity to devil worship. Um, they eventually go on a honeymoon in Salinas, and we have a lot of of discussion of the of his of Joseph's religion of his philosophy about land about sacrifice and about pain. Um, 
And Joseph makes a big deal about her having to go through this pass, and it's all kind of symbolic. But um, these chapters, I guess 8, 9, and 10, set up this relationship. And it's really, it seems that Joseph is, is, is forcing Elizabeth into his worldview. If, he's going to, if she's going to be his wife, he has to um, fit into that. Um, and I'll, I'll point out again, the same thing I p- mentioned in Pastures of Heaven is we don't really yet have a strong female character who can kind of be her own person. Um, and the ones that we have, like the Lopez's in the Pastures of Heaven, end up being prostitutes. So these do exist in Steinbeck's literature, but some of her most compelling and well-known female characters are not that attractive, like in East, in, East of Eden. So I'm not yet sure what to make of this, but here we again we have have a woman who really exists as um, a, a kind of a tool for Joseph, an, an agent for Joseph's ambitions and philosophy. Of course, Joseph has this obsession with reproduction, so it's, he probably need he needs a wife for that purpose more than anything else. Okay, well, it's in chapter eleven we we find Joseph returning to find that um, Benjamin is dead and that he was killed by Juanito. What happened? No one really blames Juanito. It's not like a a desire for revenge or anything. In fact, the other brothers don't really blame him. Benjamin was stealing and uh, Juanito walked in on Benjamin stealing money for drink or, or whatever and Juanito killed him before he knew who he was. And when he realized who he was, he felt really bad for it. For it. Now, how does uh, Joseph deal with the sorrow about losing his brother? Uh, he doesn't seem to feel much of anything. It's, it's a rather strange passage. Um, quote, he knew his thought would be heard when he said his mind. Now I know what the blessing was. I know what I've taken upon me. Thomas and Burton are allowed their likes and dislikes. Only I am cut off. I am cut off. I can have neither good luck nor bad luck. I can have, knowledge, I can have no knowledge of good or bad. Even a pure, true feeling of the difference between pleasure and pain is denied me. All things are one and all a part of me. He looked towards the house from which he had come. The light from the window alternately flashed and was cut off. Benjay's dog howled again, and and in the distance the coyotes heard the howl and took it up with romantic giggling. Joseph put his arms around the tree and hugged it tight against him. Benjay is dead, and I am neither glad nor sorry. There is no reason for it to, to, to me. It's just so. I know now, my father, what you were, lonely beyond feeling loneliness, calm because you had no contact. Benjamin is dead, sir. I wouldn't have stopped it if I could. Nothing is required in satisfaction. Very cool. In the next chapter, we, uh, we see some of the consequences of Benjay's, Benjamin's death, the mourning of him. This chapter is dominated by the wives, by uh, Rama and Elizabeth and and you know, how to tell and how to help what to do with Benjamin's wife, send her back west, send her back east or bring her into the community. So there's a debate about this and news starts to spread about who did it and why. And, um, Rama, meanwhile, who's Thomas's wife worries, basically starts to worry Elizabeth about Joseph and his, his strange behavior. She says, I don't know whether there are men born outside humanity or whether some men are so human as to make others seem unreal. Perhaps a good godly lives in earth now and then. Joseph has strength beyond vision of shattering. He has the calm of mountains and his emotions as wild and fierce and sharp as lightning and just as reasonless as far as I can see or know. 
When you're away from him, try thinking of him and you'll see what I mean. So she's basically warning him as kind of an un, a, a person who really can't be understood by the normal rules of, of human relations. Um, in chapter 13, we get the, the funeral preparations and there's a discussion about kind of the need for graves. And again, this is showing Joseph's kind of indifference or his, his accumulating all these bad things that happened to him just into the cycles of nature and just kind of a neutral naturalistic examination at, of how the world works. There's a discussion here about how graves are needed for a homestead. Like if you're going to have a family established on the land, that's going to require graves, right? Because you're going to have generations die and people don't live forever. Obviously, so the fact that this is the first grave is not a big deal for for Joseph. Uh, Juanito arrives, and Juanito wants basically to be the victim of a revenge killing. He he offers up his throat to to Joseph for the killing of of Benje, and uh, Joseph, as you might expect, says, "No, I don't need that. Uh, Benje's death was entirely natural, right? It's natural for." animals to protect their homes and that's all you did and therefore I'm not going to ask for any um, revenge. Chapter 14 we get the funeral for Benji and the coming of winter being discussed and death so along so the coming of winter is paralleled with the death of Benji all right and they start to prepare for you know the winter um, part of the year. Some Mexican migrants come in and uh, rioters, I think they are, they come in, they, they move into Benjay's home. So they kind of take over uh, that, I guess they're tenants. And that's kind of what we have. So we have uh, the, the cycles of, of nature um, playing a role in the story at this point. In chapter 15, we have some November rains. So it's, it's well on the way into winter. Of course, it's not really snowing in California at this time of the year, but it's, it's rainy. It's at this point that Elizabeth confronts Joseph about his, his paganism and how it worries him and how she finds it rather strange. What actually happens here is Joseph's simply out in the rain. Right? And he says, my skin is dry, I want to get wet. And he just allows this cold November rain to fall on him. And Elizabeth comes out and says, you know, you're going to get wet. And they have a bit of a, a fight here over just how weird this is to kind of sit out in the cold rain in November uh, for no reason, right? And that's sort of how the first half of the no novel ends. Uh, we're entering into winter. We have had our first loss of a family member. Joseph has gone farther and farther into uh, his paganism and his, his nature worship, despite taking one step towards a conventional life by marrying uh, Elizabeth. But that doesn't seem to bring him, um, I would say, down to earth, but that'd be the wrong term, certainly, for this character. Uh, Joseph is all about the earth. Um, so where will this uh, story go? We'll see in the next episode. Uh, thanks for so much for, so much for listening. If, if you read this novel and you have any opinions about it, um, please share them with me. This is uh, my, I think it's my first time reading this novel. I, I may have glanced at it before, but I didn't really, it didn't really register. So this is my first effort to seriously read it. Um, I, I find it a bit odd, but interesting. And, um, you know, I, it, I think where it ends up is, is, is fascinating. It, it doesn't really fit with some of Steinbeck's other novels, I think, but 
um, it's, a, it's a great contribution to American literature. And I like the fact that we have this kind of rule mystic again, who we saw back in, back when we looked at the octopus, I think, with Frank Norris. So we, it's been a while since we've had one of these rule mystics. And, and here we got one that really dominates um, every page of this novel. Well, I, uh, that'll be it. I'll see you next time um, in 100 pages. Thanks for listening. Sit beside a mountain stream See